1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? My name is Bond, James Bond. My instructions were implicit. I was to leave for Jamaica in two hours, licensed to kill. Now you maybe miss it. You don't miss a thing. I decided to accept your invitation. I have to leave immediately. Just as things were getting interesting again. <laughs> Bond, 007, licensed to kill whom he pleases, where he pleases, when he pleases. From the elegant club rooms of Mayfair to exotic island night spots. Jump up, jump up. Good evening. Who pays you? You. Tell us. A strange adventure of intrigue, treachery, and love. Mr. Bond, I was thinking, why don't you collect me at my apartment? It's lovely up here in the mountains. Her directions were easy to follow, and she sent a few of her friends to make sure I didn't get lost. She thought I was dead, but I proceeded to prove her wrong. I thought it was always polite to knock first before shooting. Honey, from our very first meeting, was everything her name implied. She clung to me like a wet bathing suit. But business as usual came first. The pace was killing. I thought you less stupid. I could have had you killed in the swamp. And why didn't you? 
You damaged my organization. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman whose luck is run out. Maybe it was my luck. Up to my neck in hot water. Or something blowing up in my face. You'll live dangerously with the superbly resourceful James Bond. Exclusive screen dramatization of the book that has entertained millions of readers. The exotic and tantalizing Dr. No. Some people will go to any extremes for a little privacy. Hello and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spitaro and today we are doing a James Bond movie, which means that my buddy Dave Pascarella is in the house. Hey, hey Paul. How's How it going? It's going. How you doing? All right. Pretty good. So, it's always so good far, to be here for James Bond. It's good to have you. So far we did Goldfinger and we did your favorite Never Say Never Again. Oh yes, my absolute favorite. And is that all we've done, or have we done any others? No, that's it. So We've been on hiatus. Yes, it's been a long hiatus, actually. So we decided to go back and start at the beginning, and then kind of... I don't, I don't know if we're going to jump around or if we're going to work our way up uh, from here, but we decided to go back to Dr. No from 1962. And as we usually start this off, what's your experience with this movie, Dave? I would say this is probably the second James Bond movie I ever saw, because I believe I saw Goldfinger first. And uh, again, I saw this one with my father on, t on television. And uh, at the time, I remember enjoying it. And I will say this was one of the first movies I bought when uh, VHS came out. And, you know, it wasn't just going to Sam Goody and buying it. It was going to the local video store and, pre, you know, ordering it. And it cost, at the time, something like $50. Yeah, it was crazy when they first started coming was... out with stuff on VHS. And then it took months to come. And they finally called up one day and said, uh, Dr. No was in. Come pick it up. Uh, yeah, I decided I don't want it anymore. <laughs> uh, I watched the heck out of that video. <laughs> Well, for people who don't know, Sam Goody's used to be a very big record store. Uh, and records, and then VHS, and CDs, and, you know, the whole deal. But I don't think they exist at all any longer. No, I think they're long gone. They, them, they and the Wiz went off into the sunset. Yeah, pretty much. But, yeah, for me, I don't have a specific recollection as to the first time I saw this movie. Uh, you know... I think we've talked about before, my, my introduction to James Bond was a little bit, not spotty, but a little bit sporadic as far as what I saw when, because I first, the first one I remember seeing in a movie theater was Diamonds Are Forever, and then after seeing that, but I had seen Goldfinger on TV by that time, 
So I think that was I think Goldfinger on TV was my first experience, at least the first one I can recall. Then there was Diamonds Are Forever in, in the movie theater. Then it was Thunderball and You Only Live Twice in a double feature in the movie theater. And then Live and Let Die. Somehow, uh, you know, I totally skipped over on Her Majesty's Secret Service until about, oh, 30 years later. Yeah, me too. I didn't see that one until ye- maybe 10 years ago I saw it. But that, that one was caught up in all sorts of... Uh, legal issues as far as rights go and that type of thing because the whole Kevin McClory thing with Thunderball and everything and Spectre and Blofeld and everything so uh, for whatever reason that one was held up longer and eventually we'll probably get to that one but right now we'll talk about Dr. No. I don't remember if I first saw this in a, on you know on a TV broadcast which is probably what I did or if it was when they all started to come out on VHS and I rented it from the store and made a copy of the rental uh yes i used to do that uh, oh you know what paul now that you mention it i did have a bootleg that i made off the tv back then before well, I, I bought it i i would copy stuff off tv but i was never happy with have you know even with sitting there with the remote and cutting out the commercials i was never happy with that so my buddy paul smith and i both had the same VCR. We had both purchased them together. Uh, so once in a while, we, we lived about three blocks, three Brooklyn long blocks apart. And uh, once, in a, once in a while, either I would disconnect mine or he would disconnect his and we'd walk over to the other's house with it. And then we'd take two RCA cables and connect the two of them together and we'd copy a movie before they started putting, you know, programming on it to, to prevent you from doing that. So we we had a, a you know fairly we each had a fairly large collection of VHS tapes of you know the copies of the pre-recorded versions. Yeah. So that that's I think that's ultimately you know when, when I got to watch this regularly let's say as I, I might have had a, a you know a, a glimpse of it before that but that's I specifically remember you know seeing it in those days. So this one was released in 1962, and it's the first James Bond feature film, because they had done Casino Royale as a uh, TV special back at some point in the 50s, but you know that doesn't count. Casino Royale was really the first story. Right. But for reasons that I'm not really sure I understand, they decided to do this one instead. And possibly it's because of the that there already had been a version of Casino Royale not that long before, and they didn't want to confuse people, maybe. Well, in the TV one, wasn't he Jimmy Bond, an American, something like I, that? I, I think he was. I don't think he... I, I've never seen that version. Yeah, me neither. So I, I can't really speak to the details of it, but I, I don't think it was as true to the, the books as possible. But then when we talk about true to the books, when this movie came out, apparently Ian Fleming hated it. I think uh, I did read Dr. No. But I read it back in the 80s, so I, I, I'm not too keen on how the story went. He is uh, trying to topple uh, rockets in the book. The book is actually pretty much like the movie. Okay, and yet Ian Fleming was not happy with it. So there's definitely something that set him off to make him unhappy. But I think a lot of authors are unhappy with their work on the screen because it doesn't look exactly the way they envisioned it as they were writing it right right and i and i find usually books are better but to be honest having read the book and seen the movie dr no the movie was better 
Well, I've had not a lot of experience with James Bond books. Uh, I've, I mean, I've had some over the years, and I've sat down with them. But my, my first experience with them was uh, in the 80s, and not reading the Ian Fleming books, but actually they had, I can't remember the name of the writer, John something or other, I can't think. Yes, I know, Gardner. John Gardner, yes, he, he got, I don't know if he was commissioned to do it, or if he just somehow obtained the license to it, and I had read the book License Renewed. Yes, me too, that was my first. And I have to tell you the truth, it was kind of not as good as I wanted it to be. <laughs> I, was not, I was not riveted to it the way I was uh, the movies, you know, because the movies had this, you know, visceral thrill to them that I couldn't recreate or they couldn't seem to recreate with the writing. Right. Or at least John Gardner couldn't. I think he was much older in the books, too, the John Gardner books. I think I think you're right. I don't really, again, you know, it's like 30-something years ago that I read those, so I don't really remember distinctly exactly what it was, you know, what the storyline was or anything like that. But Are you saying we're getting older and the mind just isn't what it used to be? I, I'm so old I don't even know what I was saying. <laughs> Take your medication now and let's move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, you know, watching Dr. No, my my feeling about it is that uh you know we see some of the james bond tropes starting to develop but it's not the james bond eventually we'd come to know and love right because there's no gadgets in it other than the geiger counter which is a real thing yeah or, or the uh you know when, when they go through the you know the thing to like wash the uh <laughs> the, the radioactive elements off of them and you know I mean, it's like you know that they make that into this whole big uh you know, production like this, you know, this this huge unit that does it for them and whatever. But it's just like, when you think about it, it's a little silly. <laughs> well, I refer to that as the car wash de- decontamination system. Yes, that's that's probably a pretty good way to say it. So, you know, I guess the first thing to talk about is, you know, the movie opens up and you, and you have the James Bond theme. And I know, you know... Uh, Andy Leyland and, and Luke Chacanetti and I did a uh, long play about all the, the James Bond songs, and we talked about the theme at the beginning of the movie. And, uh, you know, I guess that's that's the first place to go, is because that, that does become, you know, the iconic theme that we're going to hear forever. And, and happily so, I mean, because it's just awesome. Uh, but even, like, the opening sequence with the psychedelic uh, dots going around and playing the yep. song Three Blind Mice at the end of it. And, you know, it, it's it's not what we would eventually come to know as James Bond. Right. Well, there's those... we got to go back. The uh, the gun scope. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the barrel. Yes. That was just a unique... I think it was a u- unique way to introduce the character. And it, it survived ever since. Well, it survived. It was put on hiatus for a short time... Uh... In the most recent movies, it came back in Spectre. Well, I'll be blunt with you. Here's a secret for when we get later on. I've never seen the Daniel Craig movies. Really? Yeah. Well, assuming we get that far, you may have to. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about seeing it fresh for the first time. I'm going to hold off till we get there. 
All right. Well, that's that's actually kind of cool to do it that way. I've you know I've had different things where I've done it that way as well. Uh, so yeah, I think that'll be good because you see it through fresh eyes and you'll give me an opinion that that won't have had years to ferment. Now you spoiled it that there's no gun barrel sequence. I did in the first first three no no gun barrel sequence. <laughs> so. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, so and then. Uh, the three blind mice. Yeah. Uh, so so we go to the three blind mice, and I, and I guess that is the first film trope. You know, I mean, we have the we do have the James Bond theme in the opening, so you know that's the first thing that we become familiar with. But the three blind mice are you know effectively kind of a different assassination team. You know, just a little out of the ordinary. You know, it's three three men pretending to be blind, and they're walking around with their canes and everything, and they take out uh, was it Doctor Strangways? Commander, Commander, Commander Strangways. Strangways. So that uh, to me, that's you know, that's that's almost a little bit of you know what we're gonna get when we start getting people like Odd Job, and or even uh, in the next movie, uh, I can't even think of what her name is. The uh, Rosa Rosa Cleb. Rosa Cleb, yes. Uh, so, you know, but, it, you know, we have interesting assassins, so we start off with that, and it takes a little while before we actually get to Bond. Now, let me ask you something, if I may interject. Absolutely. Please interject as you see fit throughout this. The sequence, it goes from the, you know, the gun barrel to the, uh, the opening sequence there with, you know, the dots and the three blind mice. Would, later on, that would have been the three blind mice scene would have been the opening sequence. And then you would have the, you know... Yeah, it would have been the, the teaser. Right, the teaser. So you could see where they're kind of... You know, they haven't finished the you know the pattern they're going to use yet. It's still evolving. And, and you're going to see that pattern change, like you say, evolving, because I think, you know... Eventually, it came to the point where, you know, you, you had to have a, well, not eventually, but in most of them, you have a James Bond action scene in the opener. You don't have something like that. But then you could look at uh, Live and Let Die, where I think you have three teasers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they're all of different type of assassinations that go on. So, you know, Bond isn't really doing any action in those. Then I think under under Roger Daltrey, for the most part, they... Uh, with the exception of that one, I think they, that's where they kind of really fine-tuned the action sequence with, you know, what they did in For Your Eyes Only and uh, and, and The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it, it's an evolving thing uh, where where they've tried to go bigger and better as, as time went on with, with that action sequence. And in this one, that probably would have been before the opening credits. Yeah. I think if they, if they had their formula a little bit more down, but I'm not sure that that takes anything away from it. No, 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 not in, not in the least. No. So, eventually we get to the introduction of of Bond, and I like the fact that he's introduced with his tagline, where yeah. he comes right in. You know, when when you know she's asking his name is Bond, James Bond. I love that. Yeah, you know, that's and, the iconic line. Everybody knows that. And you hear the music in the background as he's doing it, or, or you hear you know, some form of the music in the background. Uh, and, and he's presented as, you know, 
basically kicking butt at the. Uh, I don't even know what game they're playing. It looks like blackjack, but it's not. You know, it's uh, some kind of European version, a much higher class. Yeah, so nothing I would be familiar with. Clearly, they're not in Atlantic City with their tuxedos. And... Yeah, well, it was it was also a different era. <laughs> you think about, I, I always get a kick out of like if you watch the sitcoms of the you know the late fifties and the sixties, and people are walking around their house, you know, wearing a shirt, a button-down shirt, and a tie, and a jacket, and dress shoes. Yeah. What do you mean? You don't do that? <laughs> I never have. I never will. <laughs> I had Amanda, Amanda with me while we were watching that. I said, next time your mom goes to the casino, see if anyone's dressed like that. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, when, when, I'm done, when, done, when I'm done with work, I can't change out of my suit quickly enough to put on something comfortable. So I, I, I often wonder, though, like, was it just a more formal time where people did dress that way, or is that just the way it's shown on TV, you know, like that they made it appear that way but realistically people did wear more comfortable stuff i'm i'm assuming it's somewhere in between i think people were more dressy but you know there were casual clothes i think about i'm sorry go ahead i also think you know uh in the higher these people are high end you know it's not they didn't take the bus you know to atlantic city you know it's the wealthy private club so i i could see that that's how it was back then, in this circumstance. But even if even if you go with a you know a, a much more recent period of time, if you go back about twenty five years ago, if I went to see a Broadway show, it was expected people were there with you know wearing suits. People got dressed up to go to Broadway shows. In the last few years, if I've gone to a Broadway show, there's people you know wearing jeans and, and t-shirts. Well, remember when people used to get dressed up to fly? No. <laughs> you don't remember that? I didn't. I was never on a plane until the 1980s. So I, my first trip was 77. My father had a business trip and we got to go. You don't have to, you know, wear a college shirt and, you know, dress pants and shoes to fly. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall that. I, I never knew that. But I don't question the validity of, of it at all. So... We're becoming the Get Off My Lawn podcast. Well, it's it's something I've strived <laughs> for for many a year. <laughs> Me too. So next, the next casting choice uh, that I just wanted to go to, and, and I guess we should we, actually before I go to that, we should touch on uh, was it Bernard Hughes? Is that his name? The uh, the actor who played M. Bernard Lee. Bernard, Bernard Lee. Bernard Hughes was a, a more of a character actor that. You know, an American character actor, so I'm getting him confused. But Lee, who who held the part for many many years, uh, right? And you know, we we set the tone early of the, uh, you know, the boss who respects what James gets done, but doesn't totally respect the way he does it. Yes. You know, and and they, when we have some references there, and I believe it's to Casino Royale. Uh, where he makes him switch his gun uh, because the gun he had jammed on him. And the damn Beretta. The Beretta, yeah. And he makes him go to, what's it, the Walter PPK? Walter PPK. And uh, I, 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 I'm assuming it's from the novel Casino Royale, but I could be wrong. It could be in something else uh, where that occurs. But, you know, we, we get a, 
a little taste that this character has a history already. We're, right. we're joining him, you know, as his career he's, is going on. He's M says he. Uh, no, he says to M, "Well, I carried a Beretta for ten years, so yeah. we're at least ten years into his career." Yeah, this is not a uh, a, no, a, a novice James Bond. No. Where uh, I'm going to let you in on a secret in uh, Casino Royale, we deal with a novice James Bond. <laughs> is he a klutz? No, he's Maxwell Smart. Not, not in the slightest. Uh, <laughs> but he's 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 a little more rough around the edges. Let's just say. Right. So, but even you could see the relationship he has with M's secretary, Money Patty. Yeah, that starts out that Lois Maxwell, who also had the part. For a very, very long time. Now, did you know she had tried out for another part in that picture? I did not. Who did she did she try out for, Honey Rider? No, Sylvia Trench. Oh, okay. Well, it would. She she was much better served being Money Penny and being in whatever it was, probably eighteen, nineteen movies. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I think you know to spoil ahead just a, a touch. Sylvia Trench was supposed to be a recurring character too. Because she is in From Russia with Love as well. Mm-hmm. She's the only Bond girl to come back. Well, the only Bond character girl to come back, because we did have yes, an actress. Yes, yes. Uh, right. But I mean as the same character. So we, we meet Miss Moneypenny for, you know, the unrequited uh, you know love of James Bond's life. Uh, it's, it's, and their relationship is strange with her pining after him all the time. And and you wonder sometimes, you know, is 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 it purely you know like a sexual relationship or is it more of a uh, nurturing thing? See, I take it now as more of a nurturing thing. Yeah, and I think I had thought of it the other way at one point, but I've kind of come to that conclusion as time has gone on that it's it's it, it's it's not what I originally thought. Put it that way, or at least, and I could be wrong. I mean, you can interpret it however you see fit. Right. You know, when I was young, I saw it as that. But now as I've gotten older, I could see them as the friends who just work together for years and years, and they have this banter well, back and forth. You know, there's, there's the, the expression that's come in vogue in the last, I don't know how many years, but she's like his work wife. Yes. Yeah. They're together all the time, and they never have sex. Yeah. It's almost like a real wife. <laughs> right. That's it. <clears throat> so... Uh, we also we we uh, introduced the concept of Q, but it's not Q; it's just the armorer. Yes. So, but we we will eventually uh, we will eventually expand that role, and he'll become a uh, staple of the franchise. You know what I found amusing? Just you know, watching. I watched this again last night. He's given the Walter in, in lieu of his Beretta, and they just send him off. And when you think about, like, the police department, if you're getting a new handgun, mm-hmm. you have to go through all kinds of qualifications to make sure you know what you're doing with a well, new gun. We know James knows what he's doing. James just knows it all. So, the, I would say, well, I'm going to go next to Ursula Andress, the first true Bond girl. And did you, do you know that, that you never hear her voice in this movie? I didn't know that. Her voice is dubbed. There are two different actresses. One does her speaking voice, and one does the singing voice. Really? Huh. 
This is our second Bond movie we've done with dubbing of a major character. Oh, yeah, because Gert Frobe was... <clears throat> well, I'll tell you something I noticed since we're on the topic of dubbing. I think a lot of characters in this movie were dubbed. Well, is it dubbing or is it... Uh, <clears throat> I, I can't think of what the, what the word is. When, when you uh, re-record your own dialogue just to have it more sound more clear. Where you overdub your own voice. Oh, I think these people were dubbed with someone else's voice. I'll tell you, a lot of the bad guys, this is supposed to be in Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. And they're black people in Jamaica, particularly Dr. No's team. You know, when they the boat roars up and they open fire, says, all right, we know you're here. The voice doesn't go with the person. Yeah. Do you know what? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely know what you're too. talking about. They just don't sound like they're from there. I, I kind of always thought it felt a little out of sync as opposed to not the person. So I always, like I said, I always thought of it as kind of overdubbing their own voice, but you could be absolutely correct. It could be someone else doing it. Just a theory. Uh, and then, well, actually the most debonair of all Felix Leiters. Yes. Jack Lord, who I think is, no question about it, the first time they got it right and they should have stayed with him as Felix Leiter as long as they could have, because he was, I thought he was perfect. He, he made, Jack Lord was a good rival to James Bond, not that they were rivals in the, in, in the narrative, but that, you know, he, he presents at, kind of as Bond's equal. Listen, I was watching, as I said, with my wife came in halfway through, and I said to her, Jack Lord, you know, is my favorite Felix Leiter. He just exudes cool. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, he's he's Bond's equal. He's the American version they of James Bond. They could have Bond made really. a string of movies, Felix Leiter, CIA, and had them cross over every once in a while. Yes. That's how, how cool Jack Lord is. I think if they were just introducing the franchise now and, you know, if somehow we could have these characters be, you know, these actors be this age mm -hmm. at, you know, at this point in time, if this franchise was just starting, I think we would see a Felix Leiter movie. Yeah. With Jack He was Lord. just too good, Jack Lord. Yes. Instead, he went on to Hawaii Five-0 for many years. Or was you know, he, Hawaii Five-0 was not on yet at this point, I don't believe. I don't think that started think... until around 64, 65. I want to say when they were going to bring him back in Goldfinger, right? I think that's the second appearance of Felix Leiter. And that's the worst, James, the, the worst Felix Leiter as far as I'm concerned. There's Felix Leiter Sen is an old man. Right, right. Senior citizen Felix Leiter. Yeah. Felix yeah. Leiter went downhill from there. I uh, think there's David, maybe a, what's his name, David... Uh, Hedison. Yes. He was pretty good. Yeah, he was decent. and He, he got to play the part twice. Mm-hmm. Although in the second time they didn't really do his character any favors, not uh, in the least. <laughs> uh, I I thought it you know just to keep, stick with the ones we've already covered. I thought Bernie Casey was a uh, decent Felix Leiter, at least the casting of Bernie Casey. I think you could have done a little bit more with the character, but I thought he was he was okay because he seemed competent. He seemed you know I just don't like when Felix Leiter just seems like a guy who's you know. When he's presented as kind of a bureaucrat who just happens to be out in the field, right, 
Right. And that's how they do it most of the time. This guy, Jack Lord, is not a, you know, oh, I'm just dropping off your luggage and I'll see you later. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I love that whole scene where you're introduced to Felix Leiter, where he actually speaks as opposed to, you know, watching Bond in the airport, mm-hmm. where Bond is backing up and he's got his gun out. He just very cool, hold it. Where'd you get measured for that thing? Saville Road, London. Yeah, well, mine's a guy in Washington. I just love the delivery of that line. And again, I feel like they present as as equals. I don't. Yes. I feel like you know, like it's oh, this is James Bond, and everybody has to take a back seat to him. So you know, Felix Leiter should be his counterpart, not not his, you know, his. Uh, just his his connection or his uh, personal assistant. Yes. So Jack Lord, I think, was definitely, uh, you know, I thought that was hitting it off the charts as far as, uh, or hitting it out of the park as far as casting goes. But for whatever reason, they decided not to go further with that. Uh, And then we have our big bad in the movie, Joseph Weissman as Dr. No. And if they did this today... Oh, you couldn't do him. There would be a huge controversy over casting Joseph Weissman as an Asian villain. Yep, forget it. Not going to happen today. And I'll be totally honest with you, and I'll tell you, I would kind of agree with that. I think it's it's just kind of weird to have uh, <laughs> to have have uh, you know that actor playing that part. And he was fine in it. it it's not, you know the part he was given. He he did he did it well. Uh, but it's just like you think about it and you just shake your head and say, really? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, he is half German. Uh-huh. Suppose. And he's Asian. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there'd be a lot of issues today. But he plays it great. Yeah, he does. And he, he delivers uh, what is really my favorite line in the movie. Uh, and I'm trying to remember exactly how he says, I think, something to the effect of, uh, I expected more from you, Mr. Bond. It turns out you're just a stupid policeman. Yep, that's the line. <laughs> I had forgotten, you know, that the concept of Spectre is introduced in this movie. And uh, from what I looked up on it, the concept of Spectre is not introduced in the novels until Thunderball. Ah, that's interesting. So... Because, I guess, that novel had already been written or come out, they were able to seed that in there. So that says to me they kind of anticipated uh, going further and, and having sequels to this, you know, making a franchise of it. I'm sure they didn't envision it being still around as of, you know, 60 years later. Uh, but just the same, you know, they, they clearly knew that they had something going here. If I did read somewhere that they originally considered doing Thunderball as the first movie. Mm. But then that was already wrapped up in some legal issues with Kevin McClory. So, And that's something we'll talk about more when we get to Thunderball. We already talked about it a little bit with uh, Never Say Never Again, and I'm sure we'll talk more when we get to Thunderball. Let's not forget about Quarrel. Yes, Quarrel... He kind of we kind of lose him unceremoniously, and I find I found him to be a, a, an interesting character and a likable character. I liked him. I thought he was good, and he's a tough guy too. <laughs> you want I should break her arm? <laughs> well, you don't see that that there's a scene there where he's holding that girl, the photographer, 
And for the people listening, there's a photographer who apparently works for Dr. No, who's trying to get a photograph of Bond. And Quarrel has apprehended her, and they're interrogating her. And she's got an old camera where they used to have to put the bulb in to take the flash. She breaks this bulb and slashes him right across the face. And he wipes his hand, and you see it's full of blood. And he just goes on like nothing happened. You're not getting anything out of this one, boss. You want me to break around now? <laughs> but yeah, he's 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 a, a great character. And eventually, they did kind of revive Quarrel with Quarrel Junior, which yes, is just well, weird because Quarrel is probably about James Bond's age, and so is Quarrel Junior. Well, the thing is that I remember from the books. The which book is he comes back and is it Live and Let Die? Is that the one? Yes. Where does he? I think that book's written first. So it's Quarrel in the book, and then Quarrel comes back and dies in Dr. No. Yeah, because in the book, it's the same character. Yes, yes. So, I mean, killing him off, they should have just made it another character, as opposed to Son of Quarrel. Yeah, but that's who's the same age as his father. Yes, but that's a later, a later discussion. <laughs> yes. Uh, so. But, you know, I, I noticed watching it this time, James Bond does not... Treat him as an equal at oh, all? Oh no, not at all. He's he's his manservant. Carl, go get my shoes and let's go. But I guess he he plays the role that eventually Felix Leiter will play. <laughs> right, they combined the two: manservant and Felix Leiter became one. So, yeah, and that's I guess that's pretty much it for any significant characters in this. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to put myself in 1962 mode. Oh, wait, wait, we forgot Pussfella. Oh, yeah, okay. Any any thoughts? What do you got? Well, we know he, he wrestles alligators, and no one's died from his cooking yet. <laughs> Just a likable background character that runs the bar or right. restaurant or whatever. And yeah, I guess it's... Yeah, I guess it is a restaurant. It looks... It has the look of just being a bar. But I think it is right. a restaurant. I think so too. And, uh, you know, it's, it's we're, we're you know we, we're already starting again another James Bond trope. We're getting into kind of the scenic locales that a lot of people who are watching the movie would have never been to, and you know giving you know a little bit of a travelogue kind of uh, feel to things. And the sets are all incredible already. And uh, I'm just trying to think of like you know in in the movie itself whatever kind of things stand out i always liked the, the dragon yes you know that they, they, they believe that dr no has a dragon that you know the, the superstitious natives believe that dr no has a, a has a dragon and that's why they stay away and it's a giant mechanical crane earth mover kind of thing but it yeah. shoots fire out of out of the front of it which coral should have moved back and he would have probably been okay yeah well, <laughs> let's, jump, let's jump back a little bit, shall sure. we? Bond starts the investigation, and he gives you this scene that as a kid it always fascinated me. You know, He's leaving his hotel room, and he puts powder on his briefcase, and then kind of wipes it off so he can later see if there's any fingerprints. And then he pulls a hair and puts it across the closet door. Oh, tell know, me you just, haven't done that. Uh, yes, I have, and that's where I was going going with this when you're a kid you see this and you're like oh yeah this is but what you do 
to keep your privacy. But let me point something out. You see he pulls that hair out of his head. Look at Sean Connery now. <laughs> let this be a lesson. Don't go pulling hairs out of your head. Well, that that uh, I did read that at the point that they made this, uh, he was still he still you know he was balding, but he still had enough hair that they could comb it in certain ways and and uh, you know make it look like uh, he still had a full head of hair, which they did the same for from Russia with Love. But by the time we got to Goldfinger, the toupees had started. The, uh, the the next thing from there, he goes and he meets with uh, the government representative, I'm going to call him, from Jamaica. Government House? Right, the guy at Government House. And he's asking for the files on Dr. No and Cramp Key. And, of course, he calls for the secretary, a very, very attractive uh, Eurasian woman, I'm assuming, right? Mm-hmm. And she can't find the files. So she goes off in the back, and he's like, well, I'd be surprised if she found them, you know, whatever. And then as he's leaving with the Geiger, I think he picks up the Geiger counter. He says, do you mind if I go out the back? And, of course, he goes out, and she's listening at the door. And he manages to wrangle they're going to get together later in the day. And he gets in the car, and he's driving up to meet this girl. First point is the car he's driving Reminds me exactly of the same car that Gets Smart will later drive in the opening sequence. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same car. It's a different color. But that's what it reminds me of. And an attempt is made on Bond's life by the three blind mice who are driving a hearse. Right. He escapes. They're killed. Guy asks what happens. I think they were on their way to a funeral. But he manages. He gets up to this girl's apartment. And for someone who works for the government, she's got some nice, big, beautiful place. Well, as well you should, (laughs) you government employees. And needless to say, after, you know, uh, they have a rendezvous, her her thing is to keep him there until the assassin can come and kill Bond. And he tells her he wants to go out and he's so suave, he gets on the phone, I'm going to call for a taxi. He says, yes, this is James Bond. I'm at Yadda Sendikar. Thank you. He's escorting her out like they're going on a date. There's a black car parked there. He opens the door. The police are sitting in the car and take her away. I just thought that's James Bond, suave to the extreme. Yeah, and, and never wrangled or, ne- you know, never thrown off by anything. And be careful with her nail varnish. So I'm trying to think of like the scenes in this that have stood out to me over the years. I think one one thing is the uh, the attempt on Bond's life using a tarantula. Yes. I think you know it's the first time where it's like well you know we we go to the uh, the Austin Powers theory of just kill him just you're in there shoot him <laughs> why are you setting a tarantula free in there <laughs> which he then tries to do later on. But it's, uh, like, one of the things about that scene that, that stands out is that uh, he, uh, what's it, Sean Connery apparently had a tremendous fear of uh, of spiders. I don't blame him, to be honest with you. So they, they actually filmed that using, you know, a pane of glass so that he didn't ever, ever have to actually physically touch it. Huh. Well, that was 
a, a creepy way to kill somebody. I think in the book it's a centipede, which wouldn't have looked as dramatic on uh, film. But then there's the second attempt on Bond by uh, Professor Dent at the uh, young lady's house that we previously mentioned, where he sets up the bed, he pulls the sheet over, he like creates a body. How many times did you do that as a kid? Set up your pillars to make it look like you were there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that and pulling a hair out of my head and putting it in the door. I was, I, I, I was actually, I didn't do the pulling the hair out of my head so much. I was big on the taking a, a small piece of paper, rolling it up, and putting it high up on the door when you close it so that if you open the door, it falls to the ground, and then you know, okay, somebody's been in there. <laughs> and when you came back and saw the paper was down in your head you heard the james bond music (laughs) yeah i guess uh, yeah (laughs) i'm sure that was playing in the background but he sets all this up you know the fake body in the bed and then he calmly just sits there with his gun out playing solitaire and the professor comes in you see the gun through the open the door and he fires the six shots and he he proceeds to interrogate strang uh not strangway Professor Dent. And you could see as he's asking questions, he's not really paying attention. And uh, Dent is slowly trying to move his gun closer to him. And like Bond doesn't notice or care, he gets the gun again and he pulls the trigger and it's empty. And Bond just calmly says to him, that's a Smith & Wesson and you've had your six. And shoots him. Just blunt, brutal. That's how James Bond is supposed to be. Yes, I mean, James Bond has morphed over the years, and we've had the, I I don't want to say kinder, gentler James Bond, because I don't think we ever really had that, but we did have a more light take on James Bond, you know, a a more lighthearted, more uh, just a, you know, comfortable presentation and every once in a while we would see that hard edge i definitely think we had a more hard hard edge with sean connery uh than we did uh again i'm going to just keep spoiling a little bit but until we got to casino royale i don't think any of the actors who played bond after sean connery showed the hard edge as consistently as connery did uh and i don't think i don't blame the actors i think it was more kind of the time the film was made and the way they made it and everything but we only saw flashes of it after connery yes yeah no absolutely it was definitely more light-hearted in the way it was done yeah well the humor is more overt in the uh roger moore era yes whereas this he's got these zinger lines and they're, they're f- kind of funny but it's it's a brutal funny do you know what i'm saying it's absolutely. not it's not light-hearted at all. No, it's it's definitely not. It, it's 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 kind of. I think that the zinger lines are meant more to be cool, and for just a touch of comic relief. But I don't think it's meant to be funny. Like there the, there will be a Roger Moore movie where he says to a lion, "Sit," and it's like funny. You're not going to see that with Sean Connery. Or to me, the the one where they really just went too far was where they had. Uh, was it a pigeon that did a double take? Yes, yes, the pigeon does the double take. That's that's that's, that's just yeah. that's just going too far with it, as far as I'm concerned. This this film and the behavior in it, in my opinion, is very real world. 
I could see something like this happen. You know, this could happen in a re- real world scenario. Whereas a lot of the later stuff, eh, it's like science fiction. There's nothing beyond the realm of the possible in this movie. Yeah, it, it's it's before they got over, uh, you know, before before they kept trying to get bigger and better with every movie as far as the stunts and the effects. And the gadgets. Yes. I mean, like I said, there's no gadgets in this movie. And let's let's not, I, or, you know, I don't want to misrepresent that. I love the gadgets. I love the stunts. Right. But I also like this as a change of pace off of that. And, and it's not a change of pace because this is the, where it started, but... For me, it's a change of pace because I have a whole library of James Bond things to watch. Yeah. So, uh, this movie spawned, I, you know, they were doing kind of a movie a year at this point. You know, a year later we had From Russia with Love. A year after that we had Goldfinger. A year after that we had Thunderball. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly when these movies became the pop cult, you know, pop culture thing that they were. But in 1963, we had a comic book adaptation of this movie. Uh, we eventually had all sorts of copycats. You know, you, you got The Man from Uncle. You got uh, Dean Martin Matt, as Matt Helm. Uh, you, you, you had Get Smart to parody it. Uh, even the Flintstones did an episode with Dr. Yes. <laughs> and it might, the thing I remember from that one is there was the, uh, the female spy who was, I guess... Russian, uh, who, who just kept calling Fred and Barney, you two stupid good lookings. <laughs> so I, you know, there, there was this. This did set off a uh, kind of a pop culture phenomenon, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely. It ushered in the spy era of the '60s. Boy. So, uh, before we go on to rate it. Anything else about it that you'd like to touch on? Um, just two, two, three, three final points. There's just another line I like in this movie where uh, when they're getting ready to go over to Crab, Crab Key and uh, Felix wants to go with him, you know, he's basically saying, you know, uh, my rear's in a sling if anything goes south. And Bond is like, well, you know, this is my beat, you know, but if I'm not back in whatever... 12 hours or whatever, then it's your beat, and you better bring your Marines with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, basically, Bond is confident enough in himself to know, if I can't do this, you can't do it alone either. <laughs> and uh, just to throw uh, another point is uh, when they, uh, I guess they melt down the reactor, is that what he does? Do they melt it down or do they blow it up? They well, cause gonna... it to blow up. I guess then it blows up, because if it melted down, the whole Caribbean would have been radioactive. Although, back then, I don't even know if they would have been quite as aware. Of the fallout. Yeah, of all what, that. what would, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know, in the 1960s, I don't know if they realized the, you know, the fire they were playing with. And the final trope we get that goes on in Bond movies, as far as I know, forever, is the... Uh, he winds up with the girl. They kind of like rescue him in the boat, and they still just sail off on their own. Yeah, that and that is definitely a trope. Every every Bond movie, you feel like, oh, okay, this is his, you know, his main squeeze now. <laughs> oh wait a minute, I, I'm sorry, just to back up a second. 
when they find Bond and Honey Rider floating in the boat with no gas, Felix arrives. Bond's line is, oh, do you need help? And Honey Rider stands up in the boat with one leg up. And Felix goes, quite sure you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Don't but apologize. Yes. No, that's, that's, that's a, good, <laughs> it's a good line. I'm glad you shared it. Uh, okay, so we're starting off the Bond franchise with Dr. No. But is it yours? Um, should I go first? Or? Yeah, I'll, I'll let okay. you go first. Unless, you know, as, long as, as long as you want to, you go first. Okay, I'm going to go first. Uh, yeah, this is Jaws. This has become a film classic, in my opinion. This rates up there with the African Queen, Casablanca. This is a classic film. It's timeless. It's established all the things that were to come. To me, this is Jaws. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay, I'm going to vary slightly off your opinion on that, because I'm going to put it at as Jaws 2. And I'm going to justify that by saying I do believe it's a classic. I do believe it's worthy of multiple rewatches, and I've had multiple rewatches of it. But I think it's the template beginning to form, and I don't think we're quite there yet. So I think I, I feel like it's it, it hasn't quite reached the heights of greatness that i think is to come and i'm and not every james bond movie is great don't get me wrong but i don't think the no. franchise is quite there yet i think we still need some rough edges to uh to get to the character that we know and love as much as we do uh all that said it's on the edge of jaws to me because we get a great characterization of james bond here as far as i'm concerned it is james bond the way he should be with as you know, as we talked about, you know, kind of edgy and and not, you know, not messing around, let's say. But he's also got the suave, uh, debonair, you know, way about him that that you totally respect. So there's so much to this that I love that it, it's almost like I want to make it Jaws, but I have I, I feel like I have to just pull back a little bit and say we're not quite there yet. So I'm going to say Jaws too. Uh, I think, you know, next time around, uh, unless you never know what's going to interrupt this, if we're going to come up with something else that we decide to do in the meanwhile. But right now, next time around, we'll do From Russia with Love, and we'll see where the franchise goes from here. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. James Bond will be back. And from Russia with love. Well, not in two weeks, though. Clumsy effort, Mr. Bond. You disappoint me. I'm not a fool, so please do not treat me as one. And that table knife, please put it back. Oh, we can't all be geniuses, can we? Tell me, does the toppling of American missiles really compensate for having no hands? Missiles are only the first step to prove our power. Our power? With your disregard for human life, you must be working for the East. East, West, just points of the compass, each as stupid as the other. I'm a member of Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, extortion. The four great cornerstones of power, headed by the greatest brains in the world. Correction. Criminal brains. 
The successful criminal brain is always superior. It has to be. Why become criminal? I'm sure the West would welcome a scientist of your caliber. The Americans are fools. I offered my services, they refused. So did the East. Now they can both pay for their mistake. World domination, same old dream. Our asylums are full of people who think they're Napoleon or God. You persist in trying to provoke me, Mr. Bond. I could have had you killed in the swamp. And why didn't you? I thought you less stupid. Usually when a man gets in my way. But you were different. You cost me time, money, effort. You damaged my organization and my pride. I was curious to see what kind of a man you were. I thought there might even be a place for you with Spectre. Well, I'm flattered. I prefer the revenge department. Of course, my first job would be finding the man who killed Strangways and Quarrel. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman. Whose luck is run out. 